This second part interview with Abby Johnson was recorded before the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. We all know that parenting is hard work and life can get busy. We've done the research to help you. So let's dig deep with Leanne Mancini and work together to help you raise strong Christian kids. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us again this week for the second part episode of an interview with Abby Johnson. Abby, I'm so happy to have you back on the show. And if you haven't listened, people, to the first interview, please do so. It is so good. Abby shares some great information, and her story is just amazing. Abby, in your book, Fierce Mercy, you talk about how God loves the victim and the victimizer. Yeah. You know, I, I, t- I talk about, you know, in the, in the story in the Bible about Paul, everybody knows about the conversion of Paul. Right. And how, oh, and everybody sort of praises Paul, right. For, oh, Paul, you know, he was knocked off his horse and rode to Damascus and, you know, oh, great. Paul had this big conversion, you know, and what people don't talk about, the person that people don't talk about is Ananias. And it was Ananias that, you know, God called Ananias to actually go and help Paul. You know, God was like, Hey, look, I need you to go help this guy, you know, Saul and Ananias is like, no, I don't want to do that. You know, he's, he's been killing people and, and God was like, no, like, I, I love this guy that's been persecuting Christians and I'm going to do something really amazing with him. And I need you to be a part of that thing. That's really amazing. And Ananias, even though he was hesitant, he was like, okay, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Right. It wasn't Paul that was actually the real hero in the story. It was actually Ananias, who's the hero, because even though he didn't want to, he actually went to the victimizer, to Saul, and was like, all right, I'm going to help you out. Even though like, I hate your guts because of what you've been doing, I'm going to do what God told me to do, and I'm going to help you. Little did he know that Saul was going to become Paul and, and be this, this huge messenger for the Lord. He just was faithful. So people all the time are like, Oh, Abby, you're like, you know, you're like Paul, you're like Paul. And I'm like, okay, but really, and truly the heroes in my story are the people who faithfully stood outside of my clinic every day. When I was like yelling at them and flipping them off and saying terrible things to them because I wasn't sweet. I was the victimizer while I was still in there, like working to kill babies. God was telling them, you know what? Something big is going to happen with this girl. And I need you to continue to faithfully pray for her. And so they just were like, okay, like she seems pretty rough. Like, I don't, I don't know, God, like, doesn't seem like she's going to be the one, you know, and they just, they just kept being faithful. Like I walked over to their office and they could have met me with complete disbelief that, you know, when I walked over to their office and I'm crying and I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to work at the abortion clinic anymore. They immediately befriended me, right? They, uh, they were immediately like, okay, we love you. We care for you. We want to be your friend, whatever you need, like we're going to help you. And that's, that's what we have to be as Christians. Like we may not all have that big Conversion. defining moment, like where we're knocked off of our horse, right? right? 
that's not what God's calling us to do. You know, it's so true. We have so many Christians that just spew hate and that's, that doesn't transform anyone. It's the love of Jesus Christ that people see in them and how the love of Jesus and his Holy Spirit is what transforms people because God loves the victimizer and the victim. He wants transformation. He wants all to come to him. And that that's what he did for you. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And it's well told in your book. I love your book, Fierce Mercy, and I hope people will get it. I, I know you will, those who are listening, you're going to love this book. So can you give us some suggestions to help women who suffer the guilt after having abortion? You know, I like in your book, you talk about writing a letter to the baby and then memorializing them. And you call that rehumanizing. Could you please tell us about that as well? Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, I, I participated in over 22,000 abortions, so there was no way I could go back and do a memorial for all 22,000 babies. Right. So we, you know, we ask all of our clinic workers that come on retreat with us to pick one that really had an impact on us during our time in the clinic. So for me, it was, you know, the one that I watched die that, that changed my life that really caused my conversion. And, you know, so I wrote a letter, I named him, and then there's a national memorial to the unborn in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And they have a wall. It used to be an old abortion clinic, actually. And they transformed it into this really beautiful healing place. And they have a wall of just plaques where women or men or whoever can get a a plaque and have an inscription put on it. And they will put it on on the memorial wall there. And so that's, that's what I did. And I also did the same thing for my own two abortions. And so a lot of times, you know, women and men who have participated in abortions, they'll do the same thing, or, you know, maybe they'll plant a tree or something uh, memorializing their child, or they'll, you know, do something the same way that, you know, you would memorialize a child that you miscarried, you know, a child that was stillborn, you know, we need to recognize that loss because it was a loss. It was a loss by our own hands. Uh, it was a, a loss that, you know, by our own choice. But it still is a loss, nevertheless. And that child deserves to be memorialized and to be remembered in some way. As a human being, rehumanize. I love that. And so for guilt, guilt, there's no place for guilt. Maybe remorse and repentance and forgiveness. And so doing these things helps the mother or the father through the guilt that they experience. So how can parents talk to their children about abortion? Even young children hear that word and they want to know what it means. Mm -hmm. So I think the best thing that we can do and what we've done with our children is, you know, we have always taught them early about fetal development. So, you know, our children see sonograms of babies. We show them sonograms of babies early on. I mean, if my, you know, twin four-year-old girls saw a picture of a sonogram, they would look at that and say, oh, there's a baby. We intentionally show them pictures of ultrasounds, you know, even if it's not my own. We have those little 12-week, those little squishy babies that, you know, we have around the house. We're like, oh, this is a 12-week baby. This is what it looks like in the mommy's tummy. You know, baby's heartbeat starts beating at only three weeks, you know. And, and so we have taught our kids fetal development from a very early, early age we as a family go out and pray in front of abortion clinics. And so, you know, we tell them, 
you know, we pray as a family. Maybe we only go for 20 or 30 minutes when the whole family is out there because again, we have eight children, a lot, you know, to keep up with, but as a family, we'll go out there and we'll say a prayer together, you know, praying that the babies and their mommies tummies stay safe. We pray for the mommies that are there. And then, you know, I'll bring coloring books or some sort of activity for the little kids that are out there. And, you know, we may only stay out there 20 or 30 minutes, but it gets them used to being involved in pro-life activism, which is, I want them to see that, you know, their parent, this is something that their parents on a regular basis. And I want them to be active in the pro-life movement as well. Um, And I want them to just, I want this to be normalized for them, that we are a pro-life family and we're active in the pro-life movement. You know, probably when my kids are about seven years old, you know, they'll, they hear the word abortion in our house all the time. So, um, you know, and, and probably when they're about seven years old, you know, if they start asking, you know, mom, what is an abortion? That's when I start telling them things like, well, it's when a mom doesn't want her baby and she will go to the doctor and the doctor will take the baby out of her, her womb and the baby dies. And that's sort of the language that I use, you know, when they're, when they're young, as they start getting older, you know, I'll be a little more descriptive, letting them know that it is like intentional killing that, you know, the mom is making a decision to kill her baby because she does not want the baby. Um, And that probably happens around nine or 10 years old. But because we have developed this, this framework in their mind around fetal development, it is unconscionable to them. Mm -hmm. Yes. They are like, I, when my daughter, you know, when she she first learned what an abortion was at like seven, seven years old, she was like, she's 15 now. Why would anybody do that? I mean, that is a baby. And when she first learned about it, she was angry. And you know what? I let her have that anger. Yes. You know, because it is righteous anger. Righteous anger. Yeah. Because we should be angry. I, she's a seven-year-old child. I let her sit there with that anger and, and, and just, and Express just let her sit it. with it and just yeah. let her process it, right. you know, and probably for, you know, and I probably for a couple of years, she's probably about nine, you know, she came to understand that her mom had had two abortions and we didn't really talk about it or anything, but she understood that. And then we were in the van, we were in our van one day, she looked up and she said, mom, she said, you know how you've had two abortions? And I said, yes. And she said, well, she said, I think when you get to heaven, you're going to get to hold those babies. And I said, oh, Gracie, I think you're right. And I don't try to excuse why I did it. I mean, like I tell Grace, like I made my decision to have an abortion from a very selfish place. And so I think as parents, we need to be very honest with our children about the mistakes that we made so that we can help prevent them from going down that same road. It doesn't make us a hypocrite. It makes us sort of like an authority on bad decision-making. Right. right? But, you know, I don't, I don't want to be the parent that's like looking back on my life and going, if I just would have told them, maybe they wouldn't have gone down that road. Yeah. Can you briefly touch upon what happened in the Supreme Court regarding the constitutional right for privacy, not abortion. I listened to your episode about that. Could you briefly tell the listeners about that? Yeah. So, you know, it looks like the Supreme Court is primed to overturn Roe 
And so in 1972, the primary lawyer on the case, Sarah Weddington, was basically arguing that Roe was, was a, that abortion was a constitutional right because abortion was needed because of a right to privacy in the Constitution. And ultimately, the Biden solicitors failed to show that abortion was was constitutional because of a right to privacy. And we saw that in the Dobbs arguments because there was a time during the Dobbs arguments where Justice Clarence Thomas asked the Biden solicitor, you know, are you telling me that abortion is in the Constitution because of a right to privacy, a right to liberty, or a right to freedom? Because they had been arguing for all three things. And instead of making her case like she should have and saying, oh, well, it's, of course, a right to privacy, which is what Sarah Weddington was fighting for in 1972, she said, well, Justice Thomas, it is a right to all three. And that in itself really sunk her case because then she was fighting for something totally new, right? Because that was not why abortion was deemed constitutional. It was not because there was a right to private or right to freedom or right to liberty. It was strictly because of a right to privacy. And so because she introduced these new rights now, suddenly why abortion needed to be constitutional, I thought, well, there she's lost her case. Well, Abby Johnson, I just thank you for being on the show and explaining everything so brilliantly in your movie, in your books, and now on the podcast and on your podcast, Politely Rude, which is an outstanding podcast. Is there anything you'd like to share before we end our session? No, I just want people to stay motivated. I mean, you know, moving abortion back to the States is it's a good thing, but it also means that things are about to get exponentially more difficult because now we're fighting, you know, 50 battles instead of just one at the Supreme Court level. So people need to, you know, really get plugged into their local pregnancy centers, really get plugged into their local pro-life community, because we have a big fight ahead of us. And pray, pray, pray. And this is how we all work together to raise strong Christian kids. Thank you, Abby. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.